Terrible Books with Kate. Doo-doo. Hey, I'm Laurel Woods. And I'm Caitlin Wilson. And you're listening to Terrible Books with Kate. That's me. Every month I choose a book for Caitlin to read. And then I finish it, <laughs> no matter how terrible, and then I recount it to Laurel. Yes. Um, it is a bright, shining light in the middle of my month when I get to listen to this terrible book. And this month... I chose a particular a book of particular um, that you have particular affection for, <laughs> uh, called uh, "Host" by Robin Cook. Not to be confused with "Host" by Stephanie Meyer, who wrote the Twilight series. She also wrote a book called "Host," right? Which we might do an episode on at some time. But this is I've a different. Heard that host. That's really good, though. Well. For, that's <laughs> for a different podcast. Okay. Um, <laughs> so, uh, Robin Cook. I actually, um, I think, I think I heard that my mother-in-law really enjoys Robin Cook. Um, so she was saying that she's read a lot of his books. But I'll kind of describe what this book looks like here. We've got a regular um, paperback book. It's got big white letters say Robin Cook, number one New York best time. No, New York. <laughs> Number one New York Times bestselling author, host, um, master of the medical thriller, says New York Times. Um, and then we've got kind of this silhouette of a man, but you can kind of see the edges. Like you can see his hair and his and his ears a little bit, um, but he doesn't have a face. It's just kind of a shadow. Um, and then out of his face, there's like like little specters of blood cells and DNA. Do they call them ladders? Helixes. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a, yeah. So it's, it's kind of abstract and weird looking. It just looks like a weird silhouette of a faceless man with like ghosts of science of science over him. (laughs) And then the back says, Robin Cook's explosive new thriller takes readers back to where the genre began. Where the genre began. Yeah. What happens when innocent hospital patients are used as medical incubators, in scare quotes, against their will? And then there is a picture of someone I presume is Robin Cook. He looks like a very uh, white man. Let's uh, and let's point out that that picture of Robin Cook takes up fully half. Oh yeah, of it's the huge. back. Cover. It's not like a little photo. It's like there's a little banner, like a little ribbon of black, with the Robin Cook's explosive new thriller blurb, um, and then yeah, like a like a full half of the page, and then underneath it's got brutally intense. A medical thriller cannot get any better than host says Associated Press. And then it's got the little barcode. So it's a huge photo of this very white man uh, Which, with gray hair. Before we even start talking about the content, let me just say that that's one of my pet peeves. When white the back exist. Well, <laughs> <laughs> no. When the back cover of a book doesn't have at least a little a bit summary. of a summary. Yeah, I don't know what this book is about. If it's just got blurbs from like Associated Press or other author that you're like, I don't know who this person is. Mm-hmm. I don't care why they like this book or not. I want to judge a book by its cover uh-huh. by reading the back cover summary. I don't want to turn to the back cover and look at the author. It's and a his very specific way of weird a book by its cover. Bulging eyes. like uh, Yeah, so, I mean, all right. Like, let's not get too <laughs> hurtful. He's wearing Sorry, Robin a Cook. long-sleeved black polo with another polo underneath. Is that a polo or is that just a button-up <laughs> shirt? He's wearing a layered collared shirt situation. Um and then he's standing in front of, like, kind of a fireplace, and there's a Greek urn in the background, um, and a little statuette of a lion. To show his affluence. Well, I mean, you can't you can't write a number one New York Times best-selling author book and not have a Greek urn, Caitlin. <laughs> what was I thinking? It's the number one thing I'm going to do after I write my book that is becomes... A New York best-selling book. Um, okay, so tell me all about this book that I inflicted you with, Caitlin. I will tell you about this book. 
I, can I start off by saying, though, this is not the first time I've read this book. No. Yeah, please, please uh, regale us with, I, this, with the tale. It was on the library choice reads shelf, oh which gosh. Laurel and I have talked about before, I think, in this podcast of just looking at the library. And sometimes you get a gem from that choice reads, but no. some, most times, no. what is the staff thinking? The staff of the library in our county are great. They run excellent libraries. They're beautiful. But the staff picks of books are always horrendous. They're always terrible. And then we've talked multiple times about how the website yeah. of our county <laughs> library system, they, they'll come up with collections of books. Um, and the collections of books are, I, uh, one of them was um, titled, Have You Seen My Shirt? And it was a collection <laughs> of books that just had men without shirts on on the covers. <laughs> and then another category, another collection of books that they advertised about a month ago was it said, like, have you read this? But instead of R-E-A-D, it said R-E-D. And it was just a collection of books with red covers. <laughs> and I just was so angry about that because that's not a theme. That's not a genre. Red red cover is not that's not when people say what kind of books do you like <laughs> I don't say ones with the red covers <laughs> that doesn't tell me anything <laughs> I do think because of that website situation and because it's a whole county library system I think maybe the the choice read shelf in each library is a countywide generated thing. I think maybe there's... Oh, do you think? I think so, because I have gone to multiple locations, just like being in, dif in a different area that day. Right. And I'll look at the choice reads and, and say, oh, I've seen this in mine that's right by my house. Oh. I think it is. I don't know that for sure. I pr we could probably find out. Uh -huh. But just from the way that the library system is run, mm -hmm. I think it's not individual library staff picking out books i think it's, oh, a, it's okay. a list that they circulate and that's a little comforting i guess yeah because because like you said the staff at our libraries every time i go in i feel like these guys are great i would mm -hmm. trust them yeah like, talking to them face to face for sure and so yeah it's always been a little baffling going to the choice read shelf and being like wait what <laughs> why why are there three vampire fairy romance novels <laughs> And why are they all like the fourth edition in a series? Like right. the fourth, fourth in a series. <laughs> start out with that. Give me the first book in this series and maybe I'll start reading it. Maybe it'll hook me and I'll go from there. Yeah, you exactly. You can't hook me from the fourth book in a series. Anyway, this, okay, so this has been what, a couple years ago now that I read that? Yeah, like three. And I picked this book, Host, off of the tr Library Choice Reads shelf, thought it looked cool. I think maybe the copy I had had a little bit, a little more information about what was actually going to happen in the book. And I thought, oh, that sounds like a cool idea. I'll read yeah. it. And it was really slow going because as I started reading it, I was, I couldn't get into it because of how stilted the dialogue was. I yeah. think it could have been a really cool story, but I was just having such a hard time getting past the fact that like, none of the people in the book talk like real people. And it was very frustrating and a lot of times humorous because I'm like, nobody in real life says any of this stuff. Uh -huh. And it was so infuriating to me that I came to Laurel's house for a dinner party mm -hmm. and I spent a good portion of the dinner party ranting mm -hmm. about this book. And oh, then yeah. a month later we had another dinner party with many of the same guests and you were still And talking. I was still talking about it. I still hadn't finished it. And I was still talking about it. You were still angry. <laughs> I was yeah. still angry. So um, actually, our friend Vardon, he was mm -hmm. highly amused by it. He thought it was just so funny how enraged I was by this book. Uh -huh. And he's the one who suggested that we have a podcast. So shout out to Vardon. Thank you, friend. Yeah. Thanks, yeah. Vardon. <laughs> Thanks for pushing us so we didn't just let it yeah. die. And <laughs> we're actually doing but it now. I mean, it just goes to show, like, if, if there are any friends of Caitlin or Laurel in the audience today, you know, if do you want Caitlin and Laurel to do something, suggest it to them. And three years later, <laughs> it'll they'll, happen. They'll do it. <laughs> yeah. While we're talking about friends of the podcast. Yes. Friend of the podcast, Jess. Um, we're going to we're going to issue a short correction here. Jess wanted to clarify that the reason why she had cat in the dark available for us to borrow 
and recommend us read is because it was given to her as a white elephant gift. She did not select that book. <laughs> she does not recommend that book in a personal capacity. She it was at her disposal and uh we we accessed it. Yes. So just just has impeccable taste in books and if you are interested in good writing and mental health, please visit her blog called A Delightful Blog About Depression. So, Thanks, Jess. First of all... I've forgotten all of this. Well, okay, good. It's going to be new. Fresh. Have you... Did you forget about it? I forgot. I think... Yeah, I think I forced my mind to expel a lot of the (laughs) details of this book. Yeah. I want to point out before we even start talking about the plot, Robin Cook is 78 years old. Wow. He's just... He's an old guy, and I'm going to talk about that more as we talk about stuff in the book. But I just want to point out his age. He was born in 1940. Uh Uh-huh. Let's just keep it in mind. So the plot of this book goes over um, a medical hospital. It's a teaching hospital in Charleston, South Carolina. Mm -hmm. The two main stars of the book are two fourth-year medical students named Lynn and Michael. Lynn is a gal. She's described as a lady in a book. I don't know. I have some problems with, I don't know. I was thinking about this earlier because there's some parts in the book where I'm like, this isn't overtly like overt sexism, but it still bothers me. Like as I wrote out why I flagged the specific instances, I put sexism by him. But then I was like, why am I calling this sexist? It's Uh not overt. It's really like some subtle things where just in the way that Lynn is described, she's kind of like an every girl kind of like, oh, and it's like the author was like, I don't know what a girl is like. She's probably like this. I'll slap some adjectives on this and that's a girl. (laughs) (laughs) So and and then and then later it feels like he's trying to rectify that. And so then he assigns her all of a sudden a lot more personality things. And you're like, wait a minute, why didn't we hear about this earlier? So it's really weird character development. Where it feels like he's trying to get the plot going. So he's just like, here's a character. She's she's like this. And then later he's like, wait, I need these people to care about this character. She also does these other things. And she plays lacrosse. And she has aspirations. And I'm like, cool, Robin. Why didn't you set that up in the beginning? This is right in the middle of the story. I'm like, okay, I guess I care about Lynn now. But not really because it's so implausible. It's so it's such a weird jump in um, in explanation about uh-huh. Lynn. So yeah. we've got Lynn. And then we have Michael. And then we have Michael. They are best friends. But, but okay, but you went into like how, how much Lynn is not described. What's M- Michael? Well, I'm, no, okay. Oh, you're getting to that. <laughs> no, I'm oh, getting I'm to sorry. that. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, because in describing Michael, in bringing Michael into the loop, uh-huh. he's described in reference to Lynn. Oh. And there's an example that I have flagged. Hold on. I got to find it. Michael is black. Okay. Um. And that's mentioned briefly in the beginning, and then later it's brought back in to, in the same kind of way that later there's more added about Lynn. So in the, later in the book, Robin Cook talks more about how Michael is frustrated by the racism inherent in the system, especially uh-huh. studying at a teaching hospital in the South. They're in South Carolina. Oh, yeah, totally. And so he will explain that to Lynn. But it's never, it's not really part of the plot. Okay. So we just get that maybe as background to his character. Yeah. But listen to this in interchange that happens okay. on page 70 of this book. Uh-huh. Michael reached out and enveloped Lynn's comparatively narrow wrist with his large hand. His grip was firm. Listen, sister, he began. When they were alone together, they jokingly called each other sister and bro. A bit of black argo that Michael had instigated as a sign of their platonic intimacy and comfort with each other. <laughs> Laurel is making a kind of sneering face where one side of her mouth is curled up a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I just, I, uh, why did he explain that? Exactly. You won't be asking that also, question I don't a like lot. the word Argo. Me neither. I, I don't like that. No, yeah, it's, it's a pretentious, but also remember. He's 78. He's 78. <laughs> <laughs> he makes a really big point of explaining how platonic Lynn and Michael are. Okay. He he says it so many times. They're not romantically involved. 
They're purely platonic friends. Everybody teases them about being romantic, but they're not. And uh... I'm like... He talks about it so much that I think it's going to be important, but it never is. Yeah, because whenever an author says that, then you're like, oh, yeah, definitely. Like, I mean, going back to my Audible plug, right? <laughs> the, like, Emma, like, yeah. it, it started a long time ago, right? Like, even with Emma, it's like, oh, look at the, these platonic people in England, right? Right. Like, yeah, boom, they're going to get married. Exactly. Spoiler alert to those who haven't read Emma. <laughs> um, <laughs> so does that pay off? No. Oh. That okay. doesn't happen in this Spoiler one. And that's alert. and that's why I was so confused. I think because I'd been conditioned in that way where I was uh-huh. like, Oh, they're platonic. Which friends. I mean maybe this is uh this is Robin Cook's way of being countercultural, right? Maybe like, I'm yeah. gonna like hint at this thing that I know everyone goes with and it's a bad I mean it's it's hackneyed. Yes. Right? Yeah. Anyway, go on. Why I thought so much that it was gonna go somewhere is because he talked about it so much. So instead of like naturally exploring their relationship like I feel like some authors have a really good way of showing that people are friends right they will describe you know what the people go out and do together or how they build their friendship instead of having them just instead of the author just forcing it on you by telling you they're platonic they're platonic they're platonic don't even doubt it it's really clunky Mm -hmm. and and him bringing it up he's it's this is in the beginning part of the book so I think he's he's setting that up so when it comes up later you're not like oh what but they're all of their conversation is clunky it's very stilted that's probably because they're so platonic yeah you know if you were romantic maybe you would use some contractions once in a while they never use contractions with each other (laughs) listen yeah normal people (laughs) normal people talk like normal people i don't know lynn and michael they'll be like it is not going to happen that way. And I'm like, you wouldn't talk to your friend like that. It sounds so formal the way they say it. And they uh-huh. do it all the time. Right. And so that's one of my main beefs. So they're the main two characters. And are they medical students? They're medical students. Okay. And they're fourth year medical students. Um, How many years of medical students? So that's what, I, that's what I didn't know either. Okay. So I asked my friend, actually, she lives in Pennsylvania right now. Her uh-huh. husband is going to medical school in Scranton. And so I was talking with her last night. And I was like, listen, I'm doing this podcast. What's medical school like? Wait, you're telling me you didn't just bing it? <laughs> Yucko. No, I didn't. <laughs> no, I called my friend. Much more personal interaction. Uh-huh. And, or no, she called me. Anyway, we were talking and I was like, okay, I need to know what medical school is like because to me it feels implausible that these kids are fourth year medical students because in my mind I've always thought you, go to, you do your undergrad, right, four mm-hmm. years, and then you go to medical school, which is also four years. And then I think after that, you do a residency, which is like your more specialized deal. But medical school is is all of medicine, uh-huh. just kind of like everything you need to know. And she's like, yeah, medical school is, fourth year, is four years. The first two are, are like book learning. And then the last half of medical school, you're like doing clinics and like – you're like pr- like practicing. Okay. And like so in a teaching hospital which these guys are going okay. to, it describes how they'll they have like a dermatology lecture in the morning and then right after the dermatology lecture they'll have a dermatology clinic. Oh. So people so it's like whoever the attending doctor is for their class uh-huh. is overseeing the work that they're actually doing on actual patients. So scrubs did tell it like it is. Yes. It did. <laughs> But I just needed to get clear with my friend that medical school was four years long. So if they're in their fourth year, they're about to graduate. Mm-hmm. So they should know a lot, I feel like. And they... I also feel that way. Don't. Oh. As you're going through the book, you're like, they... <sighs> it's so easy to recognize what Robin Cook is trying to do. Because Robin Cook is a doctor trying to write a book about something medical. And he's like, oh, what's the best vehicle for this to be delivered to my audience? Oh, it must be through some friends who know things about medical school. And I think for that to have plausibly worked, he should have made them earlier on in medical school. So every time they come across something they don't know and they have to look it up, they have to Google it or Bing it, um, then it would be more plausible. Whereas in this scenario, they're fourth year medical students. And every time they look something up on the Internet, I'm like, this is not inspiring confidence in our medical system. But I've literally had doctors <laughs> Google things in front of me before. So maybe I don't go to the doctor enough I to actually that, know that. <laughs> I mean, I, it doesn't make me feel like this book is automatically going to be good. But I think, like, <laughs> I think, I think the whole point of like being a doctor is that like 
you kind of know how to interpret things, right? Okay. Yeah. So it's like if you have to Google things, like, I mean, they're not walking encyclopedias, right? That makes sense. And I, I maybe shouldn't have been so up in arms about that specific thing. I just, a lot of the things I can tell that Robin Cook is using it as a device to get the knowledge yes. across yeah, to, yeah. to his audience who yeah. is not doctors. Yeah. I mean, he's writing about medical stuff for people who aren't doctors. And right. so he has to find a way to describe terms or whatever. Totally. I feel like it's really difficult for people who are really smart and who know a lot of things right. to for to remember what it's like to not know those things. <laughs> yeah. And so they're just like, they either go way too far or not enough. Yeah, for sure. Well, here's an example. Um, Lynn asks, have you done an EEG? She didn't say electroencephalogram because that wasn't how has, how staff referred to the test of brain function. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like okay. So there's an example. I feel like Robin Cook really panders to his audience a lot, and and you know what? I mean, but he, you read a lot, you learn a lot, you love a lot. And Robin he, Cook. I could. <laughs> I feel like I could have Googled EEG if I didn't know what it was. I feel like right. maybe he needs to get a little more confident in his genre. Well, and just he is 74, as we've mentioned 78. previously. So, okay. Well, <laughs> the like, I mean, maybe he just doesn't count on his readers having Google next to them. Well, actually, that's true. He doesn't count on his readers maybe like knowing what what a computer is or what Google is because later on he does talk about some some technical stuff that you're like, yeah, Robin Cook, everybody knows how to use a search engine. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe they don't. Maybe I'm assuming too much for, you know, the older generation. Uh-huh. It could be. Um, so, yeah, anyway. But then my, my friend also, okay, my friend also described it when she was telling me about medical school. These kids are, are in their fourth year of medical school. But then after medical school, you do your residency, which mm-hmm. is however long. She said the one her husband is going into, which is ophthalmology, is going to be five years. So that's five additional years on top of the eight he's already, he will already have done in schooling. Yowza. And that, so that's, you know, you, medical school is like the general learning about everything. Mm-hmm. And then you're like, okay, what am I going to specialize in? And that's what you do your residency in. And then there's more after that, even if you choose to go further. So, so okay. So Lynn and Michael don't know everything. We're okay. We can we can deal with yeah. that. Yeah. Um, I want to do one more bit about describing Lynn. In the part where he's introducing Lynn, she um, it's in context to her boyfriend. So her boyfriend is named Carl. They've been dating for a while. He's a high-powered lawyer. Gosh, the only kind of high-powered thing. I said it before, and I'll say it again. The only thing that is high-powered and is described as high-powered is attorney. Yeah, you will say it again because it comes up all the time. time. Every time we're reading one of these books. So she's dating this lawyer, and the, it, the actually the whole plot centers around Carl. So we're going to be talking about Carl a lot because oh, he, it does. Yeah, he has to go in to get surgery, and Lynn recommends her hospital to do it at, even though it's further away from where he lives, just because she she works there, she knows and trusts a lot of the surgeons. So she's like, I recommend that you come over here. Uh-huh. So that plays into the plot later. Yeah, but in I guess this, high-powered attorneys can go to whatever hospital they want. Yeah, so, <laughs> they have better insurance. Um, yeah. When he, when Robin Cook is describing Lynn in conjunction with her boyfriend, Carl, um, it frustrated me because of this sentence. As a competitive modern woman, Lynn didn't feel she needed love, but having serendipitously found it with Carl, she wanted it. Robin Cook, do you even know what ladies are like? No, he doesn't. I think that's, I mean, doesn't, like, like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Yes. You know? <laughs> People need love. Yes. I th- I'm fr- I was frustrated with the way he worded that because I'm like, she didn't feel like she needed love. What was she, a robot? Everybody needs love. It might not be romantic love, but everybody needs love. I think, but he must have, he must have meant romantic, but ugh, that's so, yeah. yeah. Anyway, go on. It's frustrating. Yeah. So, okay. So, coming from there, we're introduced to Carl. Carl is going in for a routine surgery on his knee. He plays basketball. He tore his ACL and he needs to get it fixed. Uh-huh. So he's going in and he's going to get it fixed at Lynn's hospital. He's really nervous about it. Um, Lynn's like, don't worry. I know the surgeon. Everything's going to be okay. So we have a lot of description of 
getting Carl set up for the surgery. And one of the things that is getting set up is the anesthesiology machine. And there's a doctor that runs that, an anesthesiologist. That's a really hard word. But there's an anesthesiologist named Sandra Wyckoff. She's the one who's going to run the machine. She is in love with this machine. There's like two full pages of her describing the machine. And she runs her hands over it. And she checks it lovingly. It says lovingly. She checks her machine. And I'm like, cool, Sandra. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. (laughs) I just have one question for Sandra. And that is, Sandra, why, Croft? (laughs) Why? Good one. (laughs) She, I think, again, it's a device for Robin Cook to explain to us, like, the medical advances. Like, anesthesiology isn't administered just by a doctor anymore. It's these cool new machines, technology that has happened. So in describing her machine that she's in love with, Robin Cook is like, yeah, look at all this cool new tech. And it is pretty cool. I mean, it monitors heart rate and whatever. And, like, she can dial in the exact percentages of different gases that puts the patient to sleep. Mm -hmm. So this this episode brought to you by Dr. Wycroft's (laughs) machine. (laughs) As they go into surgery, she's monitoring all the science. And I think think also um, her describing the machine so, so... um, detailed in such a detailed way yes um was to set up that she is really detail oriented other anesthesiologists might just trust to the machine it does an internal checklist but she does also does an external checklist Uh so she is really dedicated and just checks off all the boxes i see and so and she pays more attention than other doctors might during the surgery so during the surgery there's a blip on the monitor and she's kind of like well that's weird everything just kind of resets the frame resets oh no honey is something wrong (laughs) (laughs) and then everything's and then the surgery keeps going 40 minutes from the end the doctor says the surgeon says hey dr wycroft i'm going to be closing up in about 40 minutes you know and so she starts adjusting the level of the gases and as soon as she adjusts an alarm goes off from the machine something is wrong and there's uh, tenting T waves and something something and I'm like I don't know what any of this means. This is Did a part. He not describe this is a part where he gets too excited about the <laughs> medical stuff that's happening and forgets to describe what it actually means. <laughs> <laughs> it's high paced, Caitlin. <laughs> Fast paced. Yeah. So at this point, we f- Carl doesn't come out of anesthesia. Yeah. So what happens is even though the machine was recording everything and everything seemed normal, I mean, Sandra was watching it the whole time. Everything seemed normal. It actually wasn't. Something happened and Carl is now in a coma. Oh, no. I know. How sad. Lynn feels really guilty because she recommended this. She recommended her hospital and she recommended that doctor and everything. So Mm -hmm. Lynn feels really guilty. Um, How does Wycroft feel about her partner murdering <laughs> she also she feels guilty. I see. She feels guilty, but she's also she's like self assured. She knows that she did everything right, uh-huh. and the hospital is trying to blame it on her that it's it's personal error, mm-hmm. like human error. Mm-hmm. And they they say nothing could have gone wrong with the machine, and she's like, no, I checked everything. Also, as a person, I didn't make a mistake. This is not my fault. Does she like mention the blip at that point, or yeah? Oh, okay. She does. Um, and they're kind of like whatever. Turns out it's because the higher-ups are involved in what caused the blip, so they just ignore her. Lynn finds out that Carl didn't come out of the anesthesia, and she's devastated, of course. Mm. She didn't need love, but she wanted it. Yeah, once she serendipitously found it. (laughs) So now her love is in this coma, and she's really bummed out. And then she breaks every HIPAA law ever (laughs) and goes in and steals her boyfriend's chart and starts investigating it. Wait, but if she works at that hospital... She's not assigned to his case, though. Oh, I see. She shouldn't even be there. And so it's kind of sneaky, and that gives that lends it like an air of drama that uh, they're sneaking in and trying to f- piece stuff together. Yeah. She ropes Michael in to what she's doing, mm-hmm. and he turns out that he knows someone that this also happened to, this same scenario. Mm. It's a girl from his hometown that was involved with one, romantically with one of his cousins, and or maybe it, or maybe it is is his cousin, and she's kind of 
like he didn't associate with her because she kind of ran with a bad crowd or whatever. And he's not like personally invested, I think is what uh-huh. Robin is trying to say. That's why he doesn't think too much about this girl until the second case of Carl comes up. And so once Carl's case comes up, he's like, huh, this is similar to my cousin from my hometown. Let's get her records and compare them. Again, breaking HIPAA laws. <laughs> yes. <laughs> They start comparing. They see some similarities, some things that are happening, um, elevated levels of some different proteins in both of the patients. That they're like, oh, that's weird. Mm-hmm. And Lynn is convinced that the anesthesiology machine kind of like injected them with something so that those proteins were elevated. And Michael is like, you're whack. That couldn't happen. And does he actually say that? Or is that you using one of your... <laughs> one of my colloquialism. colloquialisms? <laughs> I think he, I mean, it's probably me. Yeah. Let's say that. It's probably me. Um, So he's like, no, no, no. This is not how, like, no. The anesthesiology machine is injecting it with anesthesiology is stuffed. Yeah. It cannot, it cannot cause sickness. It cannot Uh cause whatever these elevated levels of proteins are. I see. So they're trying to investigate it. Meanwhile... There's a subplot. Oh my gosh. With I love some subplots. Russians. <gasps> some Russian expats that are all friends. Okay. And all work in the technology center of the hospital. Okay. They're the ones who service the anesthesiology machines. So Dr. Sander Wyckoff goes down there and starts asking questions uh-huh. about why her machine did that weird blip. Mm hmm. And they kind of just don't address her questions and just hurry her out of the room. And so the, the Russian tech experts have a conversation after that. They're like, oh, she's onto something. But they, they allude to it. You don't know what she's onto yet. So you're like, oh, there's something weird going on. Hmm. Um, another way that they're involved with the hospital, the, this cabal of Russians is that they have built next door to the hospital um, something called the Shapiro Institute. It's for long-term care of patients in a vegetative state. So, and they, and it's like a big success for the town because it's highly automated. And so it cuts down on the need for staff and it cuts down on human error. And they have like a really high success rate of caring for patients in this state but what is success low mortality oh yeah that's how they're they're measuring it they're just keeping people alive but very well but yeah very well with little other with little outside human contact because they're it's kind of like they're like well they can't respond they're not mentally there anyway so we'll just keep them clean wash them and whatever and let not let them die yeah it's it's pretty i mean just to be on the record i would not want that no yeah for for a family member me either and this is and this is the fate that is facing carl lynn's boyfriend because he's not coming out of his coma well but like they don't have to put him there right couldn't she just take like couldn't his family or like whatever what why why is this the preferred thing because i think because it's so new and state of the art people are like and they they've done a lot of like pro marketing. They're like, look how good we are at keeping people alive. Look how little cost it is to you because we don't have to pay so much staff. But they aren't advertising that like people are waking up. No, I see. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, and so and Lynn and Lynn is frustrated because she doesn't have a say. She and Carl aren't married, so she's uh, not she's not really allowed to be visiting him because she's not family. Um, she doesn't have a great relationship with his parents, and so she he's gonna be get he's gonna be put into this institute, and because she's not family, she won't be able to visit him, and so she's really frustrated about that. Yeah. So, um, one night as Michael is walking past the Shapiro Institute, he actually runs into one of these Russians, and because he knows that the girl from his hometown, his cousin, uh-huh. is in the institute, um. He wants to kind of find out more what's happening there. Oh, so his cousin's also in. Okay. Yeah. 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 Sorry. She didn't wake up from her anesthesia and she got put into the institute. And I think his mom asked him, hey, will you check on this girl from our town? And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure, mom. But he couldn't because of the the high security. So he sees a guy come. He sees a guy coming out of the institute. And so he approaches him and he's going to try and make friends with him. And listen to this. It's something that I didn't know. And I also still don't know if it's true. 
Michael tried to figure out how he was going to get on this guy's good side. He was encouraged by something he had learned from hanging with the Russians in the hospital, namely that Russians generally admired black men and black culture. It had to do with the ambivalence Russians harbored about America, giving weight to the adage, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. It was common knowledge in Russia that the United States historically had not done right by its African-American citizens. I have met some Russians in the hospital, Michael added, again speaking slowly and loudly. So there's that. Is that true? I'm going to ask you as a completely unqualified person of of both African-Americans and Russian citizens. Is this a real thing or is this just Robin Cook? So what I will say is that like I took a Soviet art history class in undergrad, which... I highly recommend. And we actually did watch, um, there was like a lot of propaganda geared towards like showing that Russia liked black people more than America did. Okay. Um, And there was actually like the first musical ever on film in like Soviet Russia was um, this weird musical that we got to watch a segment of where basically like this American woman who is pregnant with a mixed race child comes to Russia and is embraced by the Russians and her child is too. Yeah. Um, So yeah, this was like in the fifties and and it was like this big, very successful movie in Russia. And this is just from what I remember and I can't remember the, the name of the movie or whatever, but yeah. So I mean, okay. So it's less implausible than I thought. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah. I guess it doesn't have enough background to know. It just seems That's really a very weird, like, kind of fact to insert into a book. It, well, it is. And it seems, because it seems out of the blue as well. You're kind of like, wait, what? Um, it comes up a little bit later because he establishes this weird rapport with this Russian guy. Um, he helps him out later. Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> In this initial interchange, uh-huh. <laughs> Michael is listening to music on his headphones, which are like, beats by dre or whatever like the fancy headphones as a gesture of goodwill he gives them to this russian man but those are like 200 no, i know i'm like okay michael cool whatever medical student i guess you can just afford this and then later he's like hey man want to come over i'll give you all my jay-z collection so you can listen to him on those headphones i gave you <laughs> so that's how they bond over headphones and jay-z <laughs> Okay. (laughs) Let's remember, Robin Robin Cook Cook. is 78. (laughs) Does he know any African-American artists? I think he might only know Jay-Z. And I'm not disparaging Jay-Z either. Like, cool, whatever. But it's just like, (laughs) what a weird... I'm just imagining someone Googling cool rappers (laughs) with like two index fingers. (laughs) Oh, man. Okay, so now Michael has an end to this this group of Russians and the ones specifically that work at the Shapiro Institute. Um, he and Lynn keep trying to figure out what went wrong with Carl and Michael's cousin. And then as they're trying to figure it out, there's a third case that crops up. That's the same deal. Someone who went in healthy mid thirties person, uh-huh. routine surgery, didn't wake up from anesthesia. And they're like, this is similar to all these, to these other two that we already know about. So they steal that chart as well. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Start investigating. And they actually get, they approach Sandra Wyckoff and they talk to her. And she talks to some people higher up and they figure out she's on to us. We need to take care of her. So as we come across this, we find out that the higher ups of the hospital are involved with the Russians who were hired by a pharmaceutical company in Russia to do what? To come over here and mess things up. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, three years ago, this sounded like a more implausible plot. Right. (laughs) (laughs) It's just, it's, it's, they're, they were hired by this pharmaceutical company and and so the the hospital is in cahoots with the pharmaceutical company to develop this new drug and the russians that are part of it that have been sent over to do the tech have like 
a muscle component behind them. So there's like the nerdy uh, tech guys. Yeah, but a shame a couple... if something happened to your nice anesthesiology machine. Well, they don't threaten the machine. They take out Dr. Sandra Wyckoff. Oh, no. Like, they kill her? They kill her. Oh, no. And they make it look like she got in an accident on the way to visit her ex-husband in Colorado. So they make it, like, look like it wasn't their fault. Was she already going to Colorado? No. They, like, arrange it. So they kill her in her home, but then they take her body and put it in a car and, like, abandon it. Have we... You d- they f- okay. Yeah. So that they So there's no suspicion that comes back on them. But because she was asking questions about... Oh, these medical students approach me about these similarities. Oh, da, 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 da. Um, so she dies. Bummer. Sad. She Rip. was pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Rip. <laughs> <laughs> there's I have so many examples. I flagged too many things in this book. <laughs> like the one where it's like Show me one. Show okay, me one. We'll show you one that's just funny and kind of weird. It's where <laughs> I wrote down on the tab itself. I was like, listen, pal, we all love the internet. (laughs) (laughs) Because he said, Michael says, I need to cheat. He pulled out his tablet and Googled meaning of increased lymphocytes. Thanks to the internet, he had multiple results in a fraction of a second. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, internet. I mean... From this book, I'm learning not only what an EEG is right. and what it measures, but also <laughs> the speed at which the internet works. A fraction of a sentence second. <laughs> oh so, my gosh. Lynn and Michael, using the powers of the internet, Google a lot of stuff and figure out. Earlier, they talked about that increased protein that all of these patients had. They figure out like what it's about. And then they kind of make the connection with this drug company that's developing this new drug. Uh-huh. So they're developing a type a, a drug that's called a biologic drug. And that means that it's manufactured through biologics, through the biological system of something already living. And it's the way that it's, that it's currently done is it's manufactured through mice. Ew. Yeah. Weird. Right. I don't know. I don't know the particulars of it, but somehow they like use the mice and the mouse's immune system, mice. the mice's system, oh, no. like <laughs> I corrected you incorrectly. <laughs> the, the, okay, so the so mouse's, like the individual mouse, his uh-huh. immune system produces this. Um, excuse me, female mice can <laughs> biologically <laughs> manufacture things too. Oh, okay. Her immune system. No, sorry. Yeah. So his immune system. So the mouse's immune system <laughs> produces this drug um, through something called hybridomas. I don't, I don't know. Um, and, and in that, so it Wait, comes he didn't out. describe what hybridomas were? He does. I didn't pay attention. Okay. Um, but the problem with that is this drug comes out, and then because it was manufactured through mice and not through humans, there's like certain allergens that are inherent in the manufacture of the drug that they then have to through some chemical process, take out it's before it's nice. Be, yeah. Before it's ready for human consumption. So it's a long process. It's a really uh-huh. effective new drug and that's why they're spending the money to do it. But it's a really long process to get it ready for human consumption. Uh, mm. I feel like, okay. No spoilers. <laughs> okay. So on. that's what, that's what Lynn and Michael are, are finding out as they're doing this research. The proteins that are elevated in these humans when they don't wake up from anesthesia are akin to proteins that are in mice producing these biologic drugs uh what's going on lynn finally comes to a realization she's like i think people in the shapiro institute i think they're using them as guinea pigs for these for this new type of drug oh my gosh um because what better you know all of these people that we've studied these three cases were healthy people that would be an ideal situation for testing a new drug. It's not like, and you know, and now they're asleep. They're in a coma. Yeah, they I mean, can't do anything about it. High-powered attorneys. Right. Yeah. That play basketball and tear their ACL. Like, yeah. I, yeah. I, I can't think of a single better person to test <laughs> a biological or manufacture a biological <laughs> drug with. Lynn and Michael are getting closer. And we find that out because they approach the higher-ups in the hospital and are severely scolded for investigating they think they're going to get in trouble for violating HIPAA laws uh-huh. <laughs> they're they don't because um the the higher-ups I don't know the 
hospital administration, I guess is what I want to say. Uh-huh. The like president of the hospital doesn't know that they've been studying all of the patient files. He just knows they've been doing the one. And he's like, let this go. It's fine. We don't want a lawsuit. No, ev- there's like a ban from the hospital lawyer. Nobody can talk about it to anybody. So they get in trouble for that. And Lynn is like, I know we're on to something. I'm going to keep going. So they keep pushing through and researching. They keep pushing the limits. <laughs> 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 yes. You had a look of pity on your face <laughs> right there. Anyway, go on. Because she keeps pushing the hospital administration that has a tie to this Russian cabal sends the Russian hitman after her. Oh my gosh. <gasps> yes. Do they get her? They don't kill her. Oh. There's they have instructions to just rough her up, which I don't know why. Why did they kill Sandra Wyckoff? Right. And only rough up Lynn. Right. I, I don't get it. It's maybe because it would be too easy to trace. Did Michael come with her to these meetings? No. Well yeah. So and I think part of the Michael was with her in the meetings uh-huh. and the reason they said rough up Lynn. So then she'll tell Michael also to stay out of it. He's like, the woman will influence the man. What? Yeah. But why not just rough them both up? Well, yeah, that's what I thought too. because of sexism. Probably <laughs> <laughs> just, I don't just kill both of them. <laughs> this seems easier. I mean, I don't want, Laurel, people you're arguing to the villain side. <laughs> um, so she's at Carl's house. She's just taken a shower. She's in a robe researching on the internet. Mm-hmm. And of course, she's in her robe when this Russian man comes in and tries to rough her up and he makes her take her robe off. So then she's just naked. She's oh, just no. like, it's not necessary. Right. I think Robin Cook is trying to make it be like she's more vulnerable, but it's one of those really like, it's like a sly sex. I'm like, why does Lynn have to be, why does Lynn, first of all, have to be the one that's roughed up? Why does she have to be naked for it? Mm-hmm. And yeah it's not as bad as some books like some books you they have a situation like that where you're like yeah you're just using this scenario as an excuse to describe a naked lady right it's not as bad as that but still it's like robin cook she doesn't need to be naked here right this it feels like sexism there Mm -hmm. and i I didn't enjoy that there and throughout there there's just like small things where i think he he just doesn't know how ladies are or what ladies are (laughs) and so as in trying to describe a woman as the main character of his book it's it's a little distasteful. Yeah. Um, Michael comes in at the last second and saves her. That's an- another part of it. That's great. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I it mean, was I'm one glad, or the other. Yeah. I'm glad that she was there. I'm glad. I'm glad that she got saved. I'm glad she didn't have to die. Um, but one of the thing, one of the things, you know, the, oh, this is sad. The Russian shot the cat, like as a warning to her. That's so okay. Yeah. Shooting cats unnecessary nudity of women when they are in vulnerable positions. Yes. Those are my pet peeves right now. And then I'll come up with more later. (laughs) You'll come up with more later. Well, in, in shooting the cat too, like the, the thing that she, she talks about when the cat gets shot, um, Lynn's lower jaw had dropped open. She couldn't believe that this goon had just shot the cat. And I'm like, really, Lynn? You couldn't believe this? He broke into your home. He threatened you with a gun. Mm-hmm. Like, he's a bad dude. You couldn't believe that he shot a cat? I mean, isn't that just describing, like, the disbelief that you feel in a moment of shock? Yeah. It f- yeah. But, I mean, it's as you said. It's all about phrasing in this book. It right. seems like, okay, these are, like, Things that happen or, like, things that we kind of know about. It's just, like, in the phrasing of them, he makes them seem unrealistic. And it takes you out of it. Mm-hmm. As you're going along, you're like, I would have a reaction to a cat being shot, yeah. for sure. But the way that Robin Cook describes it, you're like, now now I'm yeah. judging this person's reaction and then yeah. I'm thinking about my own reaction. And it just doesn't feel genuine. Well, it's like the dramatic version of when I describe why a joke is funny. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is. <laughs> So, okay, Michael saves her. He thinks, Michael thinks, okay, Lynn's going to back off. He doesn't know Lynn, though, because this has only made her more determined to figure out what's happening. And uh-huh. her plan now is they've pieced enough together from of the puzzle to realize that it centers around the Shapiro Institute, where people are there in a vegetative state. Uh-huh. So she's like, we're going to break in. So Michael invites his new best Russian buddy over for some beers and Jay-Z listening. (laughs) (laughs) And he 
um, makes certain to like hand them the beer bottle so they can get a fingerprint off the beer bottle. Lynn has researched how to trick a fingerprint scanner so that they can use this guy's fingerprint with like some wood glue or something to get into the Institute. Do you know you can do that? Let's try it. Let's try and fake some fingerprints. <laughs> but where are we going to break into? We don't, I don't know, know. <laughs> anything important enough that has a fingerprint scanner. <sighs> oh, I mean, everyone's iPhones. Oh, yeah. There we go. There we go. Perfect. Just pick an iPhone. I mean, it doesn't even really matter who. <laughs> yeah. Just grab one. This is the thing <laughs> that I'm wondering about is, isn't there like condensation on beer bottles? I mean, I guess I should be the one answering this question. There is condensation <laughs> on beer bottles. And I just, I'm wondering how well you can get a fingerprint off of a wet bottle. I don't know. Isn't the oils? Because, like, oil and water don't mix. Yeah, but then the oil would go on top of the water, not under oh, the water onto the I bottle. See what you're saying. Well, it works for them. Maybe, I, I guess, <laughs> I hope they enjoyed their warm beers. I was going to say, maybe the beers were warm. Yeah. <laughs> the, I don't know. He gets, they get the fingerprint. The new Russian friend also brings some, like, um, uniforms from the Shapiro Institute for Lynn and Michael to put on. Mm-hmm. And they go, and they're trying, they're getting psyched up to sneak in. They're sitting on a bench outside, and a security guard approaches. And this is the one time where the platonic thing comes in question. Because what do they do when the security guard approaches to distract from the attention they might be having do they like shake hands <laughs> no do they make eye contact <laughs> do they start do they start mashing yep okay they start making out Lynn okay. is like, kiss me right now make it look realistic <laughs> Lynn, <laughs> as down. a security guard you were just kiss me make it look realistic <laughs> <laughs> I wrote down, not so platonic now. (laughs) (laughs) But that's the only thing. I mean, let's give it to Robin Cook. That's kind of a weird thing to do. It's a trope that happens in a lot of things. But, like, they they don't actually ever end up dating. So good for him for emphasizing they were platonic and then keeping it like that. Uh 99% of the book. (laughs) (laughs) So they kiss. The guy leaves. They go and break in. As they break in, oh, um, they had found plans for this. They had gone, Lynn had gone to the, um, like, the county offices, uh-huh. county building offices, and, and gotten, like, building plans for it so they could find their way around inside. She's like, this is kind of weird. I wanted, it's six stories, and um, there's two giant rooms um, that are three stories tall. Okay. And the guy who was helping her interpret the at the county office, he's like, maybe they're gyms. And Lynn is like, it's for people in a vegetative state. Like, they don't need two giant gyms. No. So she's just like, oh, what is maybe this? Maybe one. I mean, maybe. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a puzzle. Yeah. She also got the HVAC plans for the building. So there's that. You know, she knows where the ducks are. Right. They get into the building, they go to the control center, and they find the records of the two patients that they are personally invested in. They don't care about the third one that <laughs> cropped up later. <laughs> they find Carl's record and then and then Michael's cousin's record, and they go and find them in the rooms where they're at. And as they go in, they, rec- they realize that it's fully automated. They thought there must be at least some staff in there. Uh-huh. It's fully automated. All the patients are wearing helmets and harnesses, and they are picked up by conveyor belts. Like, a hook comes and picks up a patient, takes them out of the room, brings them back. Oh, weird. Stash, stashes them back in their, you know, their pods or whatever. Uh-huh. And, and every t- everyone's asleep. Everyone's in a coma. And so nobody, nobody feels anything, and they just get picked up by this hook and moved around. And oh. he describes it as like, as like, um, like the claw machines. Robin oh, Cook's yeah. Talk, you know, like uh-huh. a kid, and, and you put a quarter in and try and get something. That's what he. That's how he describes this hook that takes them and brings them around. Oh. It's really... I hope they don't drop them as frequently <laughs> as those hook machines. Oh. Anyway. <laughs> I know, yeah. right? There's so many so many problems inherent in that. Um, there is an example when they're... So when they're in there, Lynn recognizes what's going on, and she says... My good God, Lynn cried. I'm not prepared for this. This is worse than the cluster room. 
the helmets are not just for sensors. They figure out that the helmets are actually for ambulating the patients. The helmets have some kind of electric activity in them that stimulate the brains of the patients. So the conveyor belt picks them up from the pods where they're sleeping, takes them to the two big rooms, drops them, and then the helmets just make them wander around. Oh, gross. I know. Your reaction feels so much more organic than Lynn's does. (laughs) (laughs) The helmets are not just for sensors. You're like, that's an example where I'm like, "Ah, Robin Cook, you should have showed this emotion and not have Lynn told it because it just, it feels so clunky. Well, do they show people doing that? Um, Yeah, they describe it, but he doesn't spend enough time describing it. And and I think he recognizes that that. In describing what's happening, people won't get the full import oh. of why this is horrific. And so he kind of has Lynn be like, oh, they're they're being ambulated by these helmets. And they talk about how like how difficult an, an activity just standing up. Yeah, that makes that redeems it. It's difficult to <laughs> it's make difficult them do to have that. Yeah. So it's like really high tech that's making this happen. But the, but it's like one of the reasons that this institute has such low mortality rates is because a lot of why people in a vegetative state die is because of bed sores and infection that come from that from being just problem solved then I get I mean Gosh. I yes yeah and it, it, yeah it's <laughs> and then the other horrific part of it is that you know those biologic drugs they were researching yeah earlier they find out that they are using these humans in the Shapiro Institute to manufacture biologic drugs oh that my don't have to go through the extra step of getting rid of like the mice mice DNA stuff. because they're I totally they just come, called that. You knew it. You knew it was going to happen. It. <laughs> so they know everything now, but of course they're being monitored. This high tech Institute, like even though it was super easy to break in with a wood glue fingerprint, uh-huh. there's cameras in there and people know that they're in there. So they get chased by the staff. Um, and this is where those HVAC plans come in. Lynn uh, is like, oh, they crawl up in the vents. We can escape through the ducks. She crawls in first Michael shuts the the what's it called the, the grate behind yeah. her and stays there and she's like no my what best because he's like they'll know that we left this way if the if the grate is open I'll draw I'll draw them off and I'm like no just escape just get out of there but I think he's also scared like he's much bigger than Lynn is he's oh. like 200 pounds six feet tall he's I think he's also scared that he's gonna get stuck in the he won't be able to get through the ducts oh okay um so, so that, that makes sense so he like he sacrifices himself to stay stays behind and Lynn crawls for a long time because she knows roughly the direction she should go to get to the hospital. She crawls for a long time through the ducks. I think it says it's like two hours. What? Yeah. Can Ugh. you imagine? No. No. That this was a point in the book where I was like, Robin Cook, good job making me imagine that because that's terrifying. Yeah. Claustrophobic. And she and it does get bigger as she goes on because she's, you know, coming to bigger and bigger air air flows. But still terrifying she gets out in the time she's been in the ducks michael has been captured in the shapiro institute and the hospital administration and the leader of the program the pharmaceutical program and the leader of the russian cabal have collectively decided that they are going to lobotomize michael (gasps) because he's now a danger to their program yeah no so Lynn gets out. She immediately calls. She calls Carl's dad. Wait, who, how does she find out about this? She 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 hasn't. Once she gets out of the ducks, oh. she gets out. She calls Carl's dad because she's like, "This is what they're doing in the Shapiro Institute. Call the CIA." I guess Carl's dad is high powered attorney also mm. who has contacts at the CIA and whatever. And so he's like, "Okay, I'll do it." And then she's like, "I gotta find Michael. I gotta figure out what to do." And for some reason, the way the way that she comes out of the ducks, she comes out close to the surgery center. Okay. And she comes out and she's like, oh, I'm filthy from crawling through the ducks. I'm just going to bop into the surgery center real quick and grab some scrubs so I don't attract so much attention. Change my clothes really fast. Uh-huh. When she's in the surgery center, she sees on the display monitor that the next surgery is for Michael Pender. <gasps> and she's like, what? Neurosurgery for my friend Michael. And she realizes what they're going to do. So she busts into the room to save her friend Michael. And she looks at the anesthesia machine that they have him put under, uh-huh. and it's number 37. It's the one that caused all the other ones. And she rec- she realizes, they're going to do the same thing to my friend Michael. So she's just, like, causing havoc. She's like, I can't, oh if gosh. they can't start the surgery, if I can just hold off until the CIA gets here, uh-huh. they won't be able to lobotomize my friend Michael. Uh-huh. So she 
she's causing havoc. She's yanking things off. She's trays of surgical instruments all over the floor. Everything is going everywhere. She tackles two of the surgeons. (laughs) At this point, we learn that she used to play lacrosse. (laughs) That was not ever brought up before, but there we go. (laughs) And she, so eventually she is able to hold them off long enough until the SWAT team comes in. Yeah. And the rest of the guys. And Michael is safe and she is safe. Yeah. Woo! Good end of the book. Yeah. So that's so that's the end. And then there's the epilogue. Oh. But so that means that that anesthesiology machine was like purposefully blipping the, so that yes. they would have more people to process. The cabal of Russians, the tech expert Russians who worked in the hospital because they were a part of this pharmaceutical company, mm-hmm. they manu- they like engineered it. So that it was just looping. Russians. <laughs> no, that's fine. Yeah. So it was just looping one minute of the display. So it wasn't showing what was actually oh, going on. Oh, wow. Were, yeah. Yeah. Diabolical, right? So how did she only, how did Sandra only notice one blip if it was happening every minute? So I think because when it happened, um, it wasn't noticeable the next time. It was just the initial blip. That was noticeable. And Lynn only figured out that it was looping every minute because she got paper copies of the display records from the from the monitor uh-huh. and cut them up and placed them side by side or in a column and realized this is just the same minute over and over. Oh, okay. So it, I guess it wasn't noticeable. It didn't blip every time once, I it, see. once the initial thing got started. Hmm. Um, so, yeah. So, yeah. Um, there's an epilogue, and it shows Lynn and Michael graduating from medical school. Woohoo! Way to and, go. Yeah, they, they made it. Yeah. They're, they're honored, being on their wildest dreams. Lynn is number one in the class. Michael's number two in the class. They have their dream residencies or whatever. And some problems are solved for Lynn. This was brought up earlier in the book. She was conflicted because she didn't know if Carl wanted her to stay around or not. He hadn't proposed to her. I see. And so she was like, I don't know if I want to like stay in South Carolina or like pursue my dream job uh-huh. in Boston. And... This now, is a serendipitous now that thing. Problem is solved. Oh for no! Her. No, no, no. It's not like Carl is magically awake and proposes to her. No, Carl is in a coma forever. Oh no. Yeah. That, that's Isn't not that a solution, sad- no. Caitlin? No. Well, Robin Cook thinks it is. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. So, but I mean, yeah, she's now going off to Boston to do her thing i think i think michael was also going to boston so they're so they at least as friends are going together and yeah platonically platonically maybe they come back and you know she serendipitously found love so she didn't need it no it's fine it's it's okay yeah (laughs) everything's cool i want to bring up so after i read this book i looked up robin cook just his article on wikipedia i googled robin cook (laughs) the wonder of the internet (laughs) did did the hundreds of uh (laughs) in a fraction of a second hundreds of of results Uh uh-huh what i want to read is so in his wikipedia article it describes that he is new york times bestseller nearly 400 million copies of his books have sold and that's i mean that's pretty decent decent where to way to go 78 year old man (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but he, I'm sure I could do that by the time I'm 78. <laughs> he wrote his first novel and it didn't, it flopped. And so this is a quote from him. He began to study bestsellers. I studied how the reader was manipulated by the writer. Oh. I came up with a list of techniques that I wrote down on index cards and I used every one of them in coma. So coma was his second book and I get it sold off the charts because he <laughs> used the manipulative tactics that he learned. I'm putting like index cards, like, <laughs> like flashcards and he like writes a sentence, flips an index card. Writes right. a sentence, flips an index card. So every Check. sentence Check. is using a different manipulation, but then he cycles them. So, but yeah. Okay. So, and then, um, one other thing that he said, he said, I think of myself more as a doctor who writes rather than a writer who happens to be a doctor. And that's very apparent. (laughs) It feels like he is a doctor who is socially awkward and he doesn't know how people talk to each other. So he's using Lynn and Michael as a vehicle to describe this really, I mean, like it was an intensely interesting thing. Like it was a really interesting ethical dilemma, dilemma of like the pharmaceutical company and how they're manufacturing these things. Like that's interesting. I don't know if it's real or not. I I assume some of it is based in science, but that's an interesting, an interesting point. And I think he's trying to use two friends finding out about it as like a mystery to Uh get his audience interested. But it's very apparent that he doesn't know how friends talk to each other. (laughs) 
We never use contractions. They're always explaining medical terms to each other. I mean, maybe other. this is just us not knowing the medical community. Maybe well so. Enough. But still, come on. All right. Well, Wait. that, I mean, way to go, Robin Cook. Congratulations yeah. on your <laughs> lifetime of, of success. And, uh, you know, yeah. as long as he's happy. He's still kicking. He's still writing. His list of books, this came out in 2015, and he's had a, a book every year since. Way to go, Robin Cook. Kudos. <laughs> so, okay, Laurel. Having heard about this book, do you regret regret not taking the time to read it yourself? Yeah, honestly, like, <laughs> I mean, just the quotes that you read and the number of, like, little post-it <laughs> things, slips that you have tucked yeah. into the book. Like, that seems like a lot of laughs. So, bundle of fun. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I regret not. Maybe I'll have to pick up another Robin Cook book. Yeah, try to. I mean, because if if you know the ending, it's right. not going to be as compelling. I spoiled so. this for you already, so yeah, maybe you should try another one. <laughs> yeah, and you know what? I bet your mother in law could recommend some good ones to you. I since bet. she's a fan of Robin Cook. Yeah, yeah. You've got. I'll an ask her already. what her favorite one is. <laughs> I really, I actually really enjoyed this, and because I had already read it and kind of knew how how well I had ranted about it before uh -huh. I was really excited to record this episode just because it was like a, it wasn't un, it wasn't unknown I knew that I hate read it enough before that it was I was going to have a lot of material so yeah. I was excited to do it it wasn't like drudging through drudging so it was, through. yeah it yeah. was it was a uh, it was interesting um awesome I think I'll I think I'll post a picture of the cover on our Instagram so everybody can see what it looks like um and maybe post a picture of how many little tabby notes I had in it. Yeah, too. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Oh man! All right. Well, oh, cool. I think that's it for Thanks today. Thanks so much for joining us on Terrible Books with Kate. <laughs> See you later. <laughs> See you later. Doo -doo. Overproduction is the key to humor. Yeah. <laughs>